Hello and welcome to A Geography of Colour, a series of conversations with painters about their relationship with colour and its power in their work by me, Ruth Philo, also a painter based in the UK. Today's talk is with painter Sarah Needham, who lives and works in North London and is concerned with the human interconnectedness and the interplay between the personal and the universal as expressed through the material of pigment. Sarah has a fine art degree from Hatfield Polytechnic and a master's degree in development studies. She studied traditional Chinese Sumie ink painting in Jiangxi in China. Sarah exhibits widely and her work is in collections across the world. You'll find more information on her website which is listed in the information for this episode of the podcast. Her painting begins by looking at the way in which pigments leave material colour across human history and geography, traces of our interactions. Her work is abstract and she usually makes oil paint from pigments that are relevant to her projects. I'm Sarah Needham, I'm a painter and I'm really interested, my, the core of my work is an interest in the way that people repeat behaviours and repeat that we live cyclically and I'm interested in the way that if you find a historical event with an echo to a contemporary event, you, it's sometimes easier to explore those ideas um, historically than in the contemporary world, to look at things more clearly in a way. I use uh, economic data and material from the environment and historical papers, original papers and um, written histories and there's an absolutely amazing book which is called The Pigment Compendium which has little bits of information about just about everything Um, uh, so I use use those yeah that's such a fascinating way into your work have you always done that no so that's been the way that I've worked for about the last six years but it's kind of a culmination of thinking that I've been having all the way through my work. I was looking for a way of exploring human interconnectedness across time and place ever since I graduated, which is in 1989, a very long time ago. I was looking for that. And so after I graduated in um, art and education, I did a um, master's degree in development studies. And the first part of that course was basically the history of human development, looking at it largely from an economic point of view, but that has given me ways to research the materials, um, which is, you know, quite a large part of what I do, made me understand where I could find out that kind of information. But it took me a very long time, and then eventually I got to this, that this made sense, that, that, that you could trace materials that people have used, if you trace colour that people have used, then it's not locked in with um, the use of the object. It's it's actually more open to interpretation, but you still can tr- materially trace where cultures have met, where people have travelled, where people have brought new ideas to different places, but without the sort of loadedness of an actual physical object. I know that you've um, done a lot of work into ochre and quite yes. ancient ochre. Was is that where you started, or 
Well, actually, I started with Indigo, responding to an open call for um, an exhibition in um, St. Catherine's Docks. And I researched St. Catherine's Docks, and it was, you know, that was one of the main um, entry points of Indigo into the London market. I was making little objects and then I thought well actually this is a pigment so I could I can paint with this and what appeals to me about that most of all is that you're I'm then able to make surfaces that people can fall into they're ostensibly obviously flat like all paintings but they I want a three-dimensionality I want a feeling of space in them so that you feel like you can fall in and then you've got a whole other level of connection which is then the connection of the viewer to the work and that's another that's an added surface yes it's lovely to be sitting here surrounded by your work thank you um, they're, they're kind of they're very powerful they're very abstract but I can see what you mean about falling in because the colours are almost like pools do you yeah. want to tell tell us a bit about the indigo then and what what you did with the indigo I made colour essentially colour field paintings with indigo so they were very densely dark but the but not uniform so that you have this sense of space and you have this sense of going somewhere with them but not but it's a bit confusing because it looks initially like a, a flat uh, one color and then but you need to look at it for longer and then it's um, it's not um, I think the first ones did have horizon lines in them but that was something that got abandoned quite quickly because um, it was too literal um, and I kind of want one of the things that I kind of really want is for people to make their own connections and I think whether we are conscious of it or not colour has the same kind of capacity as sound to touch your soul and remind you of things make you have memories and make and the people who really respond to work they feel that they, they, they feel something which that's really beautiful to me. That's the really most beautiful thing to me. So that's almost like colour as a vibration, like yeah. sound as a vibration. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you can think of memory in that way as well. Do you have early colour memories or? So I do have. I have quite a visual memory anyway, which I guess is not that surprising given the roots that I went down. Um, and I do. And this piece, for example, is called Magpie Shoes because after I painted it. I realised it was the same colours as a pair of sandals that I had when I was a little girl that a magpie tried to steal from my feet because they were 1970s and so glossy and plastic. <laughs> um, but I, um, I did remember that. I remember um, from the nursery school that we went to, I remember, I don't remember the specificity of it, but I kind of remember its vaguely creamy colour of the room and of... Um, my grandfather used to grow dahlias, and I remember those very, very clearly. Yeah, because they were they were loud. <laughs> yeah, but very lovely. Um, and I had a rural childhood, which I think gives you a very kind of rich colour palette as you as you grow up. Um, a kind of more varied one, maybe than an urban childhood would have given me, because it's it changes more through the seasons. After researching the products coming through St Catherine's Dock, I decided to go to the National Archives and I had a look at the, there were admiralty papers. Um, I made a series of work for 
for Bristol, where I looked at everything that had been imported through Bristol Docks in a six-month period. I then that was actually papers from that were based in Bristol, and then I looked at the Admiralty papers, and I looked at the pigments that had been in ships that had been captured during the Anglo-Dutch Wars. I was quite angry about the public conversations around imperialism and how somehow there was a presentation of the empire as if it was you know no bad thing or in some way some great thing and there's a there's a fabulous book um, published by the British Museum about all about the history of indigo which is really comprehensive and if anyone wants more information then then that's a really really brilliant source um, did you grow your own indigo no, I haven't. I know people who have. Um, I, what I have done as a little um, kind of nod to the history of indigo is I buy fair trade indigo directly from a fair, ta- fair trade supplier rather than buying it from um, an art supplier. That's where I get my indigo from. And I, get, I use both Latin American and Indian indigo, which I really interestingly they're actually a bit different they have different colour so that's a kind of lovely thing to have um, discovered so then yes I moved into indigo and then uh, I did a little project up in Lincolnshire um, that was the next sort of um, manifestation I looked at the history of the village and also they had an 11th century church which still had it had murals that they'd managed to uncover after they'd been painted over during the Reformation. So in the work that I made around that, and I worked with kids from the school, and I worked with um, memory, actual people sharing their memories of the development of the village, and used pigments that were related to those, um, either they were in the church or they were related to those stories that came up from the... What, what kind of pigments? Well, mostly ochres. There was also a carbon black, and then carbon blacks were relevant because a lot of the history of the village was to do with wood. I got the local chimney sweep to give me some soot from someone's chimney and made that into a pigment. Um, and ultramarine, just a little bit of ultramarine, because it was a tiny little church, so they wouldn't have had money for large amounts of um, ultramarine. Um, in rural places where agriculture is so important, then what you're using is actually the material that people are using to grow. The, um, and then it's also another link back to the earth, and that's fundamental to to life. You know, we we um, the sea is the source of all life from the beginning, and then earth is the source of all life as we are mm-hmm. um, uh, land animals now, and that like a little happy revelation that that that's making the more complete somehow they yeah. so then after that it's been I have a, something happening in contemporary world which will spark it can be an irritation or it can be just a thought or it can be um, something that's just ticking away in my brain for a while that then leads to a new collection of work and the only time that really changed was over lockdown, when going out and getting things from different places was more difficult, and the only access to research you had was online. In that first bit of lockdown, it was more just related to how I was feeling, because I think we were all sort of overwhelmed by the anxiety of being in a global pandemic and not really knowing what that meant. And 
And then after that, I made some work that was related to the areas that I did manage to go to, which were related to my childhood in the southwest of England. And then, in a way, they were related to what was happening because that area has... The first thing that I was attracted to were the um, barrows, which are death chambers, but they also look like fertility symbols. So they're kind of like life in death things, which felt so pertinent to the thing. And then the other things that I thought about was with the pigments I already had in the studio, I was thinking a lot about the nature of time and how we experience time, because it was such a peculiar experience of time. It made you question how we experience time in general. Um, and so I did a series of work that were called archaeologies, where I layered pig the pigments that I already had researched and were already in the studio, I layered them in the order of time, wet over dry, so that they didn't, it was kind of trying to, in a way, trying to make there be a structure. And then after making a few of those, I realised, actually, the one thing there isn't right now is a structure. <laughs> so then I started to, I did a series called Windows, which I started to, which I did by layering wet over wet, so although they were ordered in the order of time, they were blurring into each other. And also they kind of looked a bit like you, you were passing these windows. You kind of have this vague sense of intimacy because you get to know your neighbourhood so much better, but you're not getting to know any other people because you're all locked behind your windows. So it was mm. kind of a... That's really yeah, interesting that you picked up on that. I mean, everyone was putting rainbows in their windows. Yeah. So they're kind of using colour as a symbol. And a um, communication, yeah. 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 Exactly. So you had a project, Letters from a Strange Year. Yes, and also had a project, Letters from a Strange Year. And the Letters from a Strange Year project arose because I have a friend, Paul Anderson Morrow, and we are each other's um, talking boards. We meet regularly. We help each other to, you know, to work out what we're doing in this funny career that we're <laughs> moving along in the art world. During um, lockdown, we couldn't meet, and so we were communicating largely online. Um, after a little while, after this, sort of, we realised that we had this record of our conversations that we'd never had before. Both of us take notes, but they're not comprehensive notes. They're just like, oh, I must do this by blah, blah, blah. Whereas we actually had the conversations in. And that got us thinking about the way that historically artists would have written actually real letters to each other. Gauguin and Van Gogh come to mind, but there are other, plenty of other examples through art history. And we had a little exhibition and we had a project where people could contribute um, their own letters. People came in to, from the streets around and they were so delighted to be in in an art exhibition when everything had been so flat and colourless. So it was just, yes, yeah, it was such a happy thing. <laughs> yeah. Quite a novel experience. Yeah, it was exactly like that. That was just so, that just was really joyful in the middle of what was, you know, not a very joyful time in general. Yeah, and lots of the people who contributed actually came in to see it as well. So that was very lovely too. Did you find that you were making any making your own pigments while you were in lockdown i was thinking of i know that you use rose madder and uh... mm -hmm. so um i did several things i experimented with casein paint which then i decided is just too smelly for me so 
I'm not going to really smelly to make it. Um, and then once we'd been set free of it and I'd been off down to the southwest and collecting materials, then that was the first summer. So it was the summer of 2020. I did process um, ochres then from the southwest. And um, from the Jurassic Coast, I collected some mud rock and made that into pigment as well. Have you had to learn much in the way of geology so that you, rec- you can recognise what you're... So the first time I went for a... I have a friend who's a geologist and she took me on an ochre hunt the first time that I did it in Scotland. We went on a walk and she showed me, you know, what to look for. And actually, once she showed me, then you can recognise it by its colour. Um, the southwest coast is where I grew up, so that's where we were taken on geography field trips as a kid, so I knew what was, <laughs> I knew what was there already. So I really love learning about things. And I think the thing with art is you never stop learning there's always more learning to be done and actually that's one of the things that keeps me keeps me sane I guess it's it's just that you will never have learned everything there is to know about the materials that you use and you will never have learned everything there is to know about what they do when they hit the canvas what the difference is if you've processed it yourself and if and if it's been bought commercially and because I'm not um, a scientist, you know, I'm not totally um, routine or particularly good at, at um, recording exactly how I have processed things. So there's always that kind of little hit and miss about whether this thing's going to work or not. And but to me, that's magic. That's a magical thing, an engaging thing, and it keeps you. It's a permanent quest. That's yes, it's a, like, a, like continually experimenting. Are you mainly painting in oils? So ninety percent in oils. Mm-hmm. I occasionally work in acrylics, although I don't really like to but I occasionally do because someone wants to commission something and they want it quickly and obviously oil paint takes longer than um, and then the other thing that I do do is I sometimes make inks and uh, watercolours or gouache and use those on paper so I do a bit of that as well but it's a much smaller amount than oils oils is my mm-hmm. my um first love and earlier you were talking about mixing paints I don't actually mix pigments on the palette they get mixed either because I paint wet over wet so they get paint mixed on the surface or they're mixed by glazing over colour so one glaze of one colour which is translucent over another colour and you can see through and that's a mixing a visual mixing that's really interesting that's quite a purity in that isn't it and so the pigments are, have got that historic aspect to them. That, yeah. um, so when you're composing an image, what about whether colours go together or don't go together? Do you... The sort of big decision is made, this is the range that you can use for a collection. And then the decisions that I'm making, actually as I make each individual painting, they are aesthetic decisions. They are, for example, there you've got a whole sea of blue and then that little triangle of yellow just to go, bing, we've got the, you know, and the, the blues are going towards purple. So you've got, you know, opposite colours going on and um, and also a use of colour, tone within colour to create um, that sense of space that I was talking about before. And some of that comes from, I studied traditional Chinese ink painting in China for a couple of years in the... 1990s and so some of that sort of my I make paint at the beginning of the day and that echoes the grinding of ink that uh, a traditional Chinese ink painter would do and it's a way of 
grounding myself and centering myself in practice. I may get to the end of that paint and make some more later on in the day, but that's the that's always the beginning of my day is a is a period of making paint, which is it's kind of a routine thing and it is meditative and you're yeah. grinding yeah. You're, gra- you're grounding yourself yeah. it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of um, it's so interesting because it's, it, the words are similar but the yeah. process is an internal and an external, an external one yeah yeah, that's true that's you, you mentioned true. with the painting with yellow in you yeah. know, a complementary contrast yeah. um, does colour theory have much place in your I studied colour theory obviously like most people so I do use complementary colours I do have an awareness of tonality and space and contrast but it's not like huge in what I do it sits there and it does its thing in my in the background of you know my thinking processes but it's not something um, that I think about very consciously in, so it could be more unconscious and it's not yeah. really driving your no, it's, work. No, it doesn't drive my work. It doesn't drive my work. You know, not since I was at college have I made a colour wheel or, a, you know, gone down that kind of route. But once I've got my selection of colours, then then um, the way I put them together it can be informed by that. I mean, it quite often, when I look, it quite often is, actually, because mm-hmm. we've got blue and orange there again, we've got red and green on the... All over there, and red and green up here. So, yeah, yeah. It obviously does more than I um, think about. What about the binders that you use? The thinking with the oils. So my most common binder is linseed oil. Um, I do sometimes use poppy seed if it's recommended for a particular pigment. Um, With translucent pigments, quite often poppy seed's a bit better because it doesn't have the yellow. Um, in it and then I use I use commercially made uh, glaze um, materials I use Robeson's and I use Robeson's matte glaze varnish matte glaze um, media quite a lot and I use the glossy ones from Michael Harding but sometimes I do play with other ones and sometimes you can't get hold of one and so you you get hold of another one Um, and I do use um, terps although I make sure the doors are open um, and yeah that's kind of a, yeah roughly it but there's other things floating about in there which I'm probably not <laughs> yeah those are your yeah those are my go-tos yeah 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 and beeswax sometimes as well yeah and what about what about the ground do you so when I paint on wood then I use acrylic based gesso and when I'm painting on canvas then I use canvases that have been um, primed yeah primed canvases do you use coloured grounds at all no no No, it's always white and what what project are you working on at the moment I've been thinking a lot about othering and I'm looking at the witch trials in England in particular in um, the late 15, early 1600s and I have been collecting materials I've collected some materials from Essex and Suffolk and I've collected some from North Berwick which I know is in Scotland but that's the kind of beginning of James I persecution um, when he was still the King of Scotland and not the King of England and then I've also collected some coal from Newcastle and 
some uh, materials from um, Biddeford. There are women to be hung for witchcraft in England were from, from Biddeford. So I'm doing a bit of social history research and material research and now a bit of playing with the materials that I've picked up to see what they'll do and a bit of processing of the pigments and then um, actually moving into making images will begin soon enough. <laughs> Are there any particular pigments that have come up? So there's a lot of earth pigments because I've been because it's in England then I've been able to actually visit sites and pick up um, earth pigments and most of the areas are coastal and coastal areas are very good for picking up pigments because you have exposed earth at the um, river or the sea's edge that you can explore and find clays um, which ochres are basically clays. The other pigments that are involved um, from my research so far so there's coal as I said in Newcastle because the the big witch persecution in Newcastle followed on from when the coal mines were taken over by the Puritans and so there's a, that's very related to that story. The economic flux that caused the social flux um, is embedded in the um, change in the religious structures but also in the economic structures in that time, in that time and that was around coal mines. The other thing is dyeing materials, so madder and indigo and woad because you had the beginning of the import of indigo, uh, which would have been extremely expensive then, but you had common use of madder and um, woad in dyeing in the wool trade, which was on the down, and in the south-east of England, um, in particular, the area around um, the River Stour, you had this change in economic structures that was around decline of the wool industry which had been so dominant it'd been almost a mono um mono industry for that area because that area is out outward facing um it would have been the area where products of the wool trade were exported heavily to um to europe and that was collapsing at that time so you had this kind of economic collapse that there so those pigments um which were used in dyeing um, like lavender and blue is actually woad. It's so, yes. yeah. yes, that's interesting. And yeah. uh, Norwich has got a, or, uh, still has a madder market, although I don't think they sell madder there anymore. Okay, I didn't know that. I'll have to go <laughs> and yeah, see it's that. Quite yeah. Famous, right? yeah. yeah. And Sudbury, the town where I live, yeah. that's where the silk then a bit later on came along. Yeah. I wondered uh, through all this if you have um, any particular colours that you're drawn to. I, for colour, I love indigo because indigo is not one colour. It's a spectrum of blues that is, and I love that and I love it's, the fact that it's actually not quite predictable because you, any time you order indigo, because I order it from um, fair trade sources, it's not a standard product, it's a natural product, it's plant-based and it varies. And I love madder for the same reason because that's also a plant-based product. So whenever you process it, it has been affected by how it grew, whether there was a lot of water that year, a bit like what grapes for wine, that um, different batches have slightly different qualities and that feels quite magical. That's, um, I guess it's quite a good thing that I'm not too worried that there'll be slightly different colours. I know for some people that might be very challenging, but for me, 
I find that really lovely. So I don't quite know. There's yeah, this kind so of little moment. Like that idea of provenance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I mean, I know, yeah, if we want a certain colour paint and we're yeah. buying it from a colour merchant, we expect yeah. the same colour every time. But yes, when you're coming across it in the way that you're doing it, it's a uh, different. Yeah. Yeah, so if I buy a pigment from Cornelison's exactly like you say, I know exactly what I'm going to get, it will be a consistent thing. But their madder is not consistent. Their rose madder is like my rose madder. It sometimes is pinker than others. So, so even, even in um, suppliers like that, there's a, there is a bit of variation. So I really love those. But I also really love, slightly obsessed at the moment by the variations in different blacks as well so um, pigments that give you blacks which vary from uh, like manganese which is basically mineral to all the carbon blacks which are basically burnt stuff that painting up there is two different carbon blacks and if you look at the top black which is a bone black so it's um, made with burnt bone it's very matte um, it's very very opaque and it's very even and the black on the lower surface is a vine black, so it's made with wood, and that is not so even and not so opaque, and it's browner. And are kind of those little, well, they look quite big when you actually really look at them. Those differences, they're quite, that is quite finger tingly and, you know, <laughs> delicious. But I get, I suppose I have little patches of being um, particularly in love with particular pigments and then and then it works through and then it's something else and you can yeah. move on to another yeah. yeah and I was just yeah. going to ask you about applying the paint you know it's yeah. uh, consistency it's surface quality it's yeah. in what you might apply it with so I apply paint with a paintbrush and lots of people when they look at my work they think that it's been flooded on or it's been bled and it's not it's always there's a perverse bit of me that likes to create a really fluid appearing surface, but in a very deliberate way. So that's kind of just, it just feels like a little bit of magic that I'm playing with then. Um, so, I put, so I use um, paintbrush more often than not, I use a flat-ended paintbrush, which is what allows me to give a, get a very um, flat and even surface when I want to. In terms of the liquidity or the or consistency of the paint, that's something that I'm making decisions about as I go along in the studio. So I'll make the paint and then um, as I'm working in the day, I'll add media to it to make it... Um, but generally I work in glazes, so generally I build up um, in layers and so largely the paint is quite liquid for mm. that purpose. So like yeah. washes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not quite like washers. Washers suggest that watercolour that it will go on its own oh, way, whereas yeah. I'm, th that's not the case with mine. It's put where it goes. You don't necessarily get that feeling from them, do you? No. Do you think your experience in Japan in has China. a lot to do with China? Sorry, yeah. Has a lot to do with that? No, because in Chinese painting, a brush mark makes the tonal value. So you don't add a layer to make a tone in Chinese painting. If you want it to be very black, then you use very black ink. And if you want it to be very light, you use very watered down ink. So what's sort of translated is not the technique of putting the paint onto the paper or to the canvas. What's translated is the use of tone. So 
I create tone in a different way. I create tone by adding layers. And sometimes with a bit of how concentrated the pigment is in the, um, in the material. But in ink painting, it's all about how concentrated the material is in the, in the ink. So that's a different... Interesting. Yeah. And I wondered if there were any painters that have been important to you. I'm looking at your paintings and yeah. thinking about, I'm sure you were going to Yeah, Roscoe, Frank and Carla, <laughs> the, um, the abstract expressionists of the mid 20th century have a big influence on surfaces that I create and that I play with gloss and matte is very much, Roscoe was seminal for me in my, when I was 18. Grew up in the southwest, and we came up to London to go to the Tate, and it was just after the first, my first sort of experience of death. A friend had died, and I remember sitting in the Rothko room in the Tate as it was then, and it just being life changing really because it just what I felt was there in that room, and it was so. That was probably the first time that. I experienced art in that way and it was key to making me think I want to be able to do that I want to be able to have that kind of conversation through because it was just so beautiful it was so beautiful to beautiful and terribly sad but to feel recognised or to recognise very powerful thing and that's what Rothko would have wanted you to feel and so that is the power of colour and scale and yeah, it really is. It really is. It really is. But you can be inside something then, and it can be inside you at the same time. It's a, an amazing, amazing mm, That internal thing. and external. Yeah. Um, it, it's very, it, it's kind of got its own spirituality. I'm not suggesting religion. Yes. But it's kind of something bigger than this. Yes. Well, that is exactly how I feel, and that that is very important to me, and it's very important in what I'm trying to do and I'm not saying that I always succeed in doing that but that is what I want to do so yes that's partly where the visual form that's a very big visual influence on me mm-hmm. and, very... and, and you were talking about your audience with the letters from a strange year yeah I think you can feel that that's coming in here isn't it yes um, it is it's yeah. that um, because ultimately you know, there's the period of time when you're making the work and that's kind of your relationship with the work and then there's the period of time when the work moves out into the world a bit like a child, goes off and it has its own relationships with people and another connection and that's a... Um, and of course you're... You know, there's a bit of you that's part of that but actually the objects themselves, they kind of have a life of their own which is... Do, uh, do you find you understand the paint, say, a painting when you're making it, or does it have to go away from you a bit to realise what that process was all about? I think it probably the second. I think the, the process of making is, you know, you can be in periods of flow where there's no conscious thought really going on at all. It's just happening, and you're part of, you know, you and the painting are all part of one thing, which is not separate and you're not thinking. You can have a bit of a fight with painting sometimes too, um, where you're kind of a bit more separate and you're having a bit of a fight and you can't quite um, work out where it's meant to go um, and so on. But actually to really understand it properly, yes, I think probably it needs to sit in a different space and 
and you can walk into the room and see it like somebody else might see it because yes. when you're making it you don't see it like that you're involved with it it's a different thing it's a relationship that's going on a kind of process driven relationship <laughs> going on and it sounds like there's a quite a lot of unconscious processing yes as well as conscious yes there is it's, a, it's kind of a dance in a way isn't it yeah yes definitely and you can't see any of that unconscious stuff when you're in it you can only see it you can only see it later and actually sometimes it takes someone else to talk to you about something and say you know ask about things that you think okay actually yes that was that was there but I wasn't aware that that was there <laughs> yeah I, th I always think that's fascinating you know what paintings can actually tell you about yourself in a way mm. even though you think that you're painting something that's out there uh, yeah do you find you use um, certain colours symbolically or um, for an emotional resonance or anything like that? So the colour, the, the main colour symbolism for me is mm. in their story. Mm. So that's their prime um, colour symbolism. But there are things like blues. So I made a series recently thinking about truth and lies. And I looked at piracy in the um, 1600s. So I collected materials that were related to the southwest coast of England. They were either imported and exported to the ports or they were um, earth pigments from the area or they were made from the products of the mines. The ultramarine blue that I used, smugglers and the pirates used to hide things, they used to hide it in the sea. And I used the ultramarine as the, as the sea. It's in its name, it's blue, it, and so I smuggled other colours under this surface of ultramarine. So that, you know, there I was, you know, its place in reality, its colour and its relationship with the sea and its relationship with actually sea trade as well. But actually French ultramarine is made out of cayenne clay, which not rather than genuine ultramarine, which is made of... Um, which is made of lapis lazuli. So I was using French ultramarine because kale and clay is dug up in, in um, Dorset. Mm. But its name and its colour also led to, I was thinking about tides and how, um, you know, we've got this sort of chronic lying going on in public life at the moment. Mm. But those things are tidal and it, there was a sort of reassurance in putting it into that kind of tidal area. So you would have the sea that uh, might cover everything up, but it, the sea comes out again and the the everything else is exposed and it was yeah so so there the blue was symbolic of the sea as well as of its history yeah such a rich um, underpinning to a painting mm. you know, so. it's been really um wonderful to talk with you thanks to contemporary british painting of whom i'm a member for publicising this series through their website. You can find out more at contemporarybritishpainting.com and sign up to their newsletter to receive regular updates. You can also find more about this project on my website, ruthphilo.co.uk and on social media at A Geography of Colour. <laughs>